Welcome to Make It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. Each episode will have an inspiring guest tell their story of overcoming obstacles, never settling, and making it happen. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and review. So grab a coffee. Hope you enjoy the pod. Let's go. Okay, so we are live. Welcome to Making It Happen. My name is Tom Dalton. I'm delighted to say we are on episode number 28 and I have a very special guest today and I hope my introduction does her some amazingness. I'm delighted to welcome Gina London to the podcast. Just to give you a little bit of a background on Gina. Uh, Gina works with uh, corporate clients in five continents. She's a premier communications strategy, structure and delivery expert. She's also a media analysis, author, speaker, and former CNN anchor. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tom. It's great to be here. I hope did that introduction do you justice. Oh, no, there's pages and pages. I wish you would just read a whole lot more. <laughs> you know, yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's funny because I've done, a, I facilitated a lot of corporate conferences back when we did real in-person corporate conferences. And now through Zoom, I do these types of things too. And of course, you never can capture somebody in a bio. And it's great to get that credibility, but if you don't have that warmth and that connection behind it, you're never going to really engage. And I think that's what I'm so proud of is that I help leaders just slightly modify their behavior or become more aware so that they can better connect. And that's, it's my passion and it's really my joy. So thanks. It's a great opportunity to be here. Brilliant, Gina. I'm, I'm looking, really looking forward to get into that side of things. Gina, if we were to go back, we do this with probably most of our guests to your childhood or journey. Where yeah. does that begin? I sense a bit of an accent, do I? No, this is a completely Dublin accent. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up, it's actually my accent that I have now, I hope is, is more, well, not I hope, I know it is more neutral than the one that I grew up with because I grew up in a really small town in Indiana in the, the Midwest of the United States. God and guns country, as we call it. I used to joke that it's the belt buckle of the Bible belt there. And the town is actually called farmland. So you don't get more rural descriptor than a town that is the name is what it is. And when I grew up in farmland, when we talk about sort of your core story and what begins to define you, one, I was a little girl that always had dreams of going abroad. I used to read the newspapers from well back to front because I used to read the comics first and then I'd read all the headlines and I read these global stories and I just was fascinated with the idea of travel and journalism and stories and I think one thing I learned early on was that if I wanted to become my big dream was to become a, a television correspondent and the network level even which was just crazy when you're a little kid from a small town where your parents aren't connected to anybody or or anything or that whole networking thing was a complete mystery to you but I did hear early on when I was about 10 one of my mom's best friends because my mom grew up outside of Chicago so a different accent a little more urban-y accent and mine was really very country and one of her friends said at one time when we were visiting that's such a nice little country girl that you adopted and my mom said oh, I know and I said well, I'm right here I can hear what you're talking I can hear that but then I realized and when I finally went to college that I did actually work to neutralize and pick some words that could be more easily understood, for example, the capital of the United States, when I ended up being a, a, a White House correspondent, 
in there, you couldn't have said reporting live from Washington, which is how it would have been pronounced in farmland. And it's not to say though, that I don't keep those values that I learned from my small town. And one of the core essences of me, I learned when I was in farmland because my dad was a pilot for a small corporation. And one day, two weeks before Christmas, when I was 11, he was had dropped off the president of the company and it was on his way back to his own hangar. And it was very foggy. And for whatever reason, he possibly didn't check his controls again but he did clip trees about 500 yards from the runway and he, and he crashed and he died. Mm. And at that point in your life, when you're 11 years old and you think that you're immortal and that nothing bad would ever happen to you. And I had a great childhood up to that point. And then your mom is suddenly a widow with three little kids. My brother was six and my sister was eight, but it was a defining moment for me because you learn that life is short it's tenuous, relationships matter, to make things precious. And I mean that really sincerely because fast forward, when I was a, a reporter for CNN then and I was in, in New York after 9-11, talking to people whose families or loved ones had disappeared and possibly died at that point before they realized the severity of that attack. There's an empathy that I believe needs to come forward purposefully. And that's something then that people were willing to open to share with me, I think maybe better than if I had just stuck a microphone in their faces and not just in 9-11, but in all situations and being able to purposefully demonstrate value and rapport would have really stemmed from that small, humble, terrific town that I grew up in and the people that came to support my mom after my dad died. So that's my background. Well, and Gina, first off, sorry to hear about your loss. It's um, and it's just before we move on to your studies in college. If yeah. you don't mind me asking, you were the eldest sibling, were you? Yeah, I was. I was. I was eleven. My sister was eight. And my brother was six when my dad died, and my brother now he lives on a on a boat in West Palm Beach, and he's a diver and a scuba instructor, and he's an amazing guy. And my sister lives in Ohio with her husband, who's a surgeon, and they have one amazing daughter. So they've all grown up and we all together. My mom, thankfully, is still around and she remarried when I was a freshman in college. And she has also been an incredible impact in my life in terms of discipline, determination, resilience, moving on, moving forward when you don't feel like getting out of bed in the morning. She is an incredible strength and probably the biggest hero of my life and a great model. And I think we all need models. And for me, this whole idea of who we impact and taking ownership of even the littlest things. I used to start working with clients because the, the, someone would refer them to me saying, oh, we need to have media training or we need to have presentation coaching. And that's sort of that one-off zone. And now I'm really grateful that there's a real move, especially frankly, through COVID and remote working to not train people, but to help develop them so that they're lifelong skills that they can use in any situation and not just save it for that big speech or that big presentation, but to understand that holistic approach to purposeful communications is something that's a learned and developable skill. And Gina, just on that, did, did you have to grow up really quick when this happened? 
Yes. And so I actually have some demands on my own daughter who's 12 years old because I'm like, if I had to do it, you can do it. Um, my mom went back to school. She was 34 years old. My dad died. She had her undergrad, but she went back to get her master's. And again, to my mom's great credit, that woman got a 4.0 in her master's while she was a grieving widow. Phenomenal story of, of integrity and determination. And I became that babysitter. I made the snacks when my brother and sister came home. I vacuumed the house once a week. I did a little dinner sometimes when she had to work late and it's okay. And this whole term of latchkey child, I think was brought in right around that time when they were becoming more and more two, two working parents households. And of course for hours, it was the one parent that, that went back because she had to. And there are a lot of questions around it. Maybe it's not the ideal situation, but it is a situation that you deal with. And again, I'm a huge believer that everything doesn't happen for a reason. I, I actually refute that statement. And I believe and live my life that things happen. And the how you respond to them is what gives them reason. And that's a subtle, but I think an important shift in framing how your life, what happens to you and how you deal with things. And Gina, if we were to fast forward a bit then with your teenage years, what did college look like or were you 100%, you, you mentioned your dream earlier of journalism. What did that look like? I was, well, I will say I was an ambitious kid. I knew that frankly, and this is for anybody who's growing up maybe in a small town or, or, or a village or, or somewhere where they don't feel like they've got the connections and everybody needs connections to make it. Well, start planning now. Start thinking about what your goals are now. It's, I say it's never too late, but it's also never too soon. I wrote my first letter to the editor that was published in a bigger city's newspaper because our town didn't have one when I was 13. I also was the editor of my school newspaper, which was just a mimeographed back in the olden days of just copy machines paper. This was not digital. It's now only online. But at the time, I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. I read every reporter's biography that I could. These women, Jessica Savage and Linda Ellerby, these women who were the first pioneers in U.S. TV journalism, I was blown away by by their stories so you read and you absorb and you aspire and you put these goals out and then I did study journalism and political science at Indiana University and I was accepted in fact to a, a really good Indiana University has a great journalism school but Northwestern outside of, of Chicago would be probably one of the pinnacle journalism schools and while I was accepted into that program I couldn't afford their out-of-state tuition so I didn't go and it's important though, again, keep your eye on the prize, it's a cliche, but it's so true because there's so many distractions. And while I did date in high school, <laughs> I can tell you that I knew I, most of my friends didn't go to college, which is, that's a choice. But for me, I knew where I wanted to go and I also knew what might hold me back. And so you've really gotta be determined, I think, to keep that, that laser focus especially in those really easy to be distracted um, ages. Brilliant. And Gina, just on that, when you qualified, um, what was the next step? Was it knocking on doors? Was it getting in front of people? Or what was that next stage for you? When I qualified, 
to, uh, to I'm sorry, the question. When you graduated from college. So when you oh, got when I graduate. Yeah. Okay. So when I get, yeah, when you graduate from college, it's like every senior in a university, you start thinking, do, do I have it? Did I, I didn't take internships and that was a mistake. So I certainly advocate for university students take those. I did. I will say I did probably blow off my summers more than I should have. My, my mom got remarried when I was in, in college in Indiana to a lovely fellow who they're still married. And he's terrific. And they moved down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. So suddenly I had spring break land to go home to in the summer and I, in the beach and all these sorts of temptation so while i was doing okay in my studies i didn't take advantage of the internships which might have propelled me a little faster so that aside but i was grateful though when i did graduate i had an opportunity to i had a, a boyfriend at the time frankly who had was a photographer in journalism and he had a job at the orlando sentinel which was one of the top middle tier newspapers in the country owned by the chicago tribune so had a good impact and a good parent uh company owning it in terms of its journalistic integrity and its approach so i took the first job i could get at the orlando sentinel which was not in the editorial department i was back in the day before there was there were all these online uh, sales platforms i was a classified ad taker for six whole months which is one of the most pathetic demeaning notes. It was lovely, but oh, didn't want to do it, but did. And then I eventually was moved up. I applied for everything within the editorial department, moved up to the library. So I've got good into research and I really love those skills. I use those today. I'm a terrific researcher and I learned that on the, on the job there. And then I was end, ended up being a city beat reporter with the Orlando Sentinel. But meantime, when I'm, when I'm interviewing people, I happen to meet the president and interview the president of the American Trial Lawyer, the American, easy for me to say, the American Trial Lawyers Association, who was visiting Orlando for an event, but was based up in DC. And during that conversation, I'll never forget, he said, if you really want to get into politics and be a correspondent, you need to move to where that is. And that's a critical thing too. It's often we think about, oh, I want to, this is my dream, this is my dream. Go to where your dream is. If you want to be in animation, go to where great animation is taking place. If you want to be in tech, hey, stay in Dublin, but go, go or go to Silicon Valley, but go. So I packed up and I moved and I lived with a girlfriend from college, a sorority sister in, in Washington. And then I went and met people, one person, get another referral, get another referral. This whole idea of networking, and I continue to do it actively to this day. And networking just means making friends. It sounds sometimes like this big businessy, it's almost pejorative and it sounds schmoozy, but just meet people. People like to give advice. They like to meet with people and then they are more bought into you and care. And then they're more likely to refer you or they're, you're in their mind and they can refer you to someone else. And over time, it does help in so many ways. And Gina, you've got a great passion and drive and I suppose burning desire to move. And what opportunity came next? Or was it just networking that you just got an opportunity or how did that come about? I can almost say, now there are some, there are a few exceptions now, but I can almost say that what 95% of every job or every event or any conference I've been a part of has been from a, a referral. Now I'm 
I've built the company enough. I have a, a sales associate and I, and I brought on a marketing team. And so we're getting into more of that push out, but it's largely been people coming in. And so my first position in Washington, I ended up being referred to and worked with the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the DSCC, which in the Republican and the Democratic Party, there's the three tiers. There's the national, there's the congressional, and then there's the Senate branch because each one of those is busy working to try to get members filling those particular roles or of course the president for the national. And working at the DSCC, I worked around amazing people, learned a lot about politics from the inside. Because when you're a young 20 something year old on Capitol Hill, you are scrapping because there's so many of you out there and you live and breathe politics and you go to parties and you're talking about HR 71, which would mean House Resolution 71. You're talking about bills. Like some people talk about music. I mean, it is, an incredible place to be. And I was referred to that organization. And then from that time, I was referred then to a congressman's office and from my home state, and I worked with him. Then there was an opportunity from another connection back at the DSCC, because this guy's cousin had worked in this particular newsroom in DC. And I started my first job in a newsroom in television was in Washington, DC as the secretary for the news director. So again, I'm not an editorial, but I'm there. I'm in Washington, top 10 market, capital, even though it's not New York, all this incredible political news is happening there and that's my passion. And so then I'm also working as a secretary to the news director, which has its own stories of belittling and demeaning and we don't have to go or we can go there. But I was also meeting great reporters Friends I have to this day, in fact, one of the very anchors that I was incredibly admiring back in the day is now one of my dearest friends, and we were just texting each other yesterday on WhatsApp to, to I have another call because we've been in touch all these years. And then through that, I was recommended for an opportunity to write freelance for CNN because the CNN Bureau in Washington was hiring some freelance writers. And so I got a chance, long story, but I took 40 different calls to the freelance writer coordinator to finally have her respond to me. And it wasn't 40 in one day, that was 40 a day. So I won a day for 40 days. So I wasn't that persistent, but she ultimately called me back and I came in and I took the writing test and ended up freelance writing for the network, which was phenomenal. And that is the where, where I then moved from the local network to the network itself. Brilliant. Gina, I know you've given me a short synopsis of, <laughs> of a big chunk of your life. Yeah. I suppose that my question would be for any of the listeners, it's, it's one thing I, with myself in life and business, I try and put the reps in. It's not about the short term uh, results. It's about the long term. I need to keep putting those reps or calls or knocking on more doors and knocking on more people. And you made that reference, reference there, 40 calls, one a day for 40 days. I'm sure you had up and downs in that time, but what, what kept your drive going? Oh, look, I, I tried, I was actually just talking to my sales guy last week about we're not, you're not going to win or, or few of us, maybe some do. Rarely do we win on the first call. Rarely do we make that first interview or that first audition and we get the leading role or we get the, the position. And the idea that I was saying to my sales guys, if we can just think about ourselves sort of like the stock market where there might be an upward and then a dip and then an up and then a dip. But if our trajectory over time 
is in a direction that we want to go. We can't completely influence or guide or direct our path, but we can, we can't completely direct our path, but we can influence it. And there are plenty of days when, for whatever reason, I get knocked down, but I, it, it doesn't last for very long. And it's usually because I reach out to somebody or frankly, I've got my daughter and I've got a puppy and I've got responsibilities like my mom had. I mean, you've, you, you've got to keep going. I mean, there's no alternative. And if you, if you sleep in or you don't get out of bed, you might miss that one call or that one opportunity to connect or someone who's trying to connect with you. And then it changes. I mean, it's amazing how the, it's like Irish weather. You can be in a rain cloud and then bam, the sun comes out. Yeah. And keeping that in your mind, and, and I am a big believer in motivation and inspiration and coming from CNN land or not CNN, but coming from journalism that we're a bit cynical because we sort of get into the rhythm of the news and we kind of feel like we've covered all these stories a million times before. But to remind yourself, the first time that I went to go hear a motivational speaker or hear, I talked about motivation on one of my platforms years ago, I remember some guy who was really well-respected documentaries, like, oh, that stuff is drivel. Like it's not drivel if it keeps you going. If a shared story connects with you and reminds you that you're not alone in this journey, it is not drivel. I have met people who claim to be islands. I am not one. Most of us, I believe, are not. And that's why I love corporate land now because businesses are beginning to really understand, especially through remote working and the needs that are required there, that people do need support. People really need this engagement. You work with wellness and, and mental health for, for people. And that's so important because our productivity is connected to how much we feel valued. And to purposely structure that, big CEOs and senior leadership team members, they're understanding now that it can't, it's not just left for the middle managers. Millennials especially, they demand and want transparency and approachability to the higher execs. And so these higher execs who might have been doing things a certain way for 25 years are now going, okay, I get it. I need it. I don't know how to do it. And that's where I come in because the real confidential coaching around how to purposely show more expression, purposely active, actively listen to what I say is develop your authenticity is not back to the days when I was a kid in Indiana. Changing my accent a bit to be better understood and better connect is not inauthentic if you're keeping connected to those values from within. It's purposely showing those inside values. Yeah. Brilliant, Gina. And Gina, just, just back to CNN. So you got the opportunity to write for them. Yeah. For you, was that day one? Here's my, I'm going to light the fire with this and push as hard as I can so they know my name. I think day one for me was being in that newsroom that first time at WTTG Channel 5 in Washington because, oh my gosh, a little kid from Indiana to actually be in a big newsroom was blow away. And I think when you start to realize the other people in this newsroom are not magical creatures from another planet, they're people with different backgrounds and their own insecurities and their own stories and their own, hey, other parents who have died, you know, there's not an exclusivity to this whole thing. And I'm not trying to diminish what I went through, but people have had 
heartbreak. And then when I went into CNN, which, woo, now I'm in the major leagues, guess what? Same types of people. And the first time that I met my, the group CEO for EY, for example, Mark Weinberger, I, now he's, he's no longer there, but a couple years ago when I was sitting next to him at a dinner, I was about to facilitate. He has a group CEO of a major company. And he reveals to me, I'm the first CEO that wasn't a trained accountant. We've all got our stuff, right? And so my first opportunity to report for CNN Live was that would have probably been, oh my gosh, you know, this is happening. And for my mom then, once I was given my, my contract and became a correspondent for CNN and then was breaking news, wherever the headlines are, my mom would say she'd always know where I would be in the country because I was a domestic breaking news with an emphasis in politics, but not solely politics, correspondent the first part. She said, I always know where you'll be because I look up and see what the headlines are and I'm like, there'll be a report on CNN from my daughter. And that ability to still connect with people when you become, I guess, on air and people recognize you and and you're you're running through an airport one i remember running through an airport to go cover a story and a filed can story obviously not live of mine came on at the same time so it's a surreal thing of seeing yourself on air but you're actually zipping to something else and and i and i had a pr rep i had glossy photos that you would send to i had a stalker you know you've really arrived when you have a stalker <laughs> not funny i'm not making light of it um it, it's an incredible time but i think and, I'm, and that will always be a part of who I am, Tom, but I think now that I'm past CNN and, and one of the other real loves of my life is I was able to go with that performativity and storytelling and that ability that, that I learned from the rigors of 24-hour news, I then took that into helping in developing and emerging democracies around the world, people who are wanting to maybe be advocates for civil justice or to help a campaign awareness i ran uh, an awareness campaign i ran the first awareness campaign for immunization in cambodia with a group of youth and then you take the skills that you've learned from that and you're able to transfer and that's where the light bulb really went off and said oh my gosh these are skills and they're developable and they're transferable and then they can go and transfer and they can send hopefully great messages of positivity and making changes where they are and so from the training programs and the workshops and the campaigns that I led around the world in Romania, Macedonia. I lived in Egypt for a year. Then some, some of the corporate stuff came. And the great thing about corporate is because they have resources to invest and they have real opportunity to impact emerging leaders right up to the top. And so for me now, I love to work with my, my NGOs and, and my mentor mentorees as well i have two right now from nigeria which i'm thrilled to be working with but for me it is help people purposely better connect so that they can help other people to purposely connect and make that difference in a real meaningful way brilliant gina and um, gina i'm sure your passport has a some amount of stamps from the amount of traveling you've done um when you were a journalist and you're interviewing some powerful people and i'm sure you've met every walk of life did you ever feel nervous oh yeah absolutely in fact it's only real to be honest it's only been in the probably the last few years 
that I haven't had that nervous feeling. And I remember in particular, about three years ago, I was asked to do a fireside chat and facilitate an event. Facilitate an event is easier because you're zipping and back and forth and you're not talking to someone for a great deal of time. But I was asked to then have a fireside chat, real longer interview with Bill Ford Jr. So the grandson of the founder of the Ford organization, the executive chairman of the organization himself, a bazillionaire, and guess what? The first thing that we started talking about before we came on stage together were his two I forget if they were teenagers or early, early 20s, and what a difficult time he had because they'd come with him and his wife um, for this event. What a difficult time he had had getting them out of bed, just like a normal dad. Yeah. And at that moment, you just think, ah, this is the kind of leader, and I believe he is a servant leader. I believe he does have a real determination to be that kind of person not everybody does and when you meet those people that are going to arm wrestle you on a stage figuratively that's tricky and then you get into a different zone but when i was just starting off i mean i interviewed senators presidents olympic athletes i i, I didn't interview but i got to meet the pope at a distance when we were when pope john paul francis when pope john paul ii was coming into uh st louis and miami I, I met, but I, I didn't formally interview, but I did, I was behind the scenes when Princess Diana, on one of her last trips to the US, when she came to speak about landmines with the, with the Red Cross in Washington. And some people are bigger than life, but when the bigger in life people have real poise and confidence and care, you know that they are different than the people that are still trying to prove something. And I am happy to say that most of the people that I've met that are in real success stories and real positions of influence actually appear anyway to fall into the latter category of those who are wanting to purposely give back and understand their impact and are ones leaders that want to develop others. And I believe that a true leader wakes up every morning and says, how do I continue developing myself and how can I develop others? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Gina, I probably have a two-part question here now. I could talk for hours and hours to, to hear your, your story. It's amazing. Um, but when you're interviewing, I suppose, people of importance or people of power, yeah. it's hard for you to go in with a perception before interviewing them. And then I suppose part two of that question, I assume as a journalist, I could be wrong, you're trying to draw out honest information from them. Well, this is say the first question again because I'm I want to make sure I not jump over to the second one. What was the first part? Yeah, question one would be when you're interviewing someone um, of power of influence, is it hard for yourself before meeting them going in with a perception or an opinion of them before you've even met them? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is a tricky one because again, when you frame it as the as the role of the journalist, that's a different one than if you frame it as the role of the corporate facilitator or the event or the event host right because then you're doing it on behalf of a client and the goals are different so if i were going to interview some really influential person and their part of their timeline was a, 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 maybe a bit of a scandal or a bit of a financial difficulty or something i have to make sure in that role that that doesn't derail what the point of this conversation is for the goal of that event okay 
likewise now, so then so that's a different thing and then when i'm talking about my my approach as a journalist then and, and this is what i help my clients understand and one of my favorite favorite lines comes from from a, a french uh case study which wasn't mine i i wish it were but the guy had come a government official and there was a reporter and the french journalist asked question 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 and the government official answered answer 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 each of those answers had nothing to do with the question that was asked and at one point the reporter apparently exasperatingly said I'm asking you this, this set of questions. And he says, right, you've got a set of prepared questions. I've got a set of prepared answers. <laughs> and when, when you're trying to work as a journalist, you are looking to possibly, you think you know where the angle's gonna go. And in that case, you might be asking loaded questions. I mean, it happens. You're looking to provoke a response. I'm gonna encourage my clients to make sure that they're focused on their audience, which is not the reporter, it's whoever their clients, their customers, the people, whoever they're trying to talk to. It's not to get tangled with the, with the reporter. And so there might be a bit of a disconnect. And because I've worked on both sides of this coin, I know the, I know the dance very, very well. So as a reporter, you do want to make news. There's no question about it. And so people that get frustrated that the reporter didn't stick to the agreed upon questions is naive. That's naivete. Because a reporter has a duty to try to break news, to try to, I, I often tell my clients on this side, stop talking. A reporter's trained to not over, or they should be trained to not overstep you. And a lot of people don't like that, that void. And so they won't wrap their question. And the more you meander, the more you go the more likely you will see something that you shouldn't say or not that you're trying to hide something but maybe it's important to tell this portion and then you need to go get some buy-in and publicly say this next portion so it's not all about obfuscating but it's about controlling what the message is and here it's about getting more when you can so the whole dynamic is a fascinating one and that is why I'm so committed to the value that I bring with the experience that I've had around anticipating and formulating the strategy, getting that structure down, and by golly, out loud practicing, out loud practicing. It should be done for the reporters too. Too many young reporters can be easily manipulated by more experienced people on the other side and vice versa. So I love the dynamic. I think it's a fantastic role play of communication strategy. And the dynamic is one that I, that I feel like I'm probably pretty uniquely equipped to help clients on either side because i've worked in so many different in so many different areas in so many different countries so it's not just an american approach it is a global standard and i have lots of experience to bring and i i love helping people i really do brilliant and gina i suppose how did with all your travel and being around the world by the sounds of things what led you to ireland uh well ireland i was living in italy and doing a lot of corporate work there. And my daughter was school age and starting, she was fluent in Italian. I was conversant, better than your average American, but, but by no means could I really dig down and do the type of interview that we're doing now or speak at a, at a conference or facilitate at the level that, that I do in English. So it became pretty obvious. I was either gonna have to take her move back to the US or find an English speaking country. And I looked into London, our city, I looked into London, I looked into Ireland, and honestly, I didn't foresee Brexit. I came early 2015, 
but I could not be happier. It is an excellent place to do business and be based in, and it is an incredibly safe place to raise my daughter, and that means a lot too. My sister I mentioned earlier, whose daughter is now almost 15, she has to go through metal detectors and she has to go through live gun drills when she is in school. And that's something that my own daughter doesn't have to experience. Yeah. And one second, because I actually have a dog walker who's just arrived. No worries. There, we're back. This is the life wow. of remote, remote, remote working people. You're in your home. The dog walker comes. Thankfully, she has a key. The puppy was on the bed. She knows. And we're back. We're live, as we say in the business. Um, Gina, I could talk to you. This could be a half-day conversation. <laughs> of your time, and I'm getting great value, and I'm sure the listeners will hearing your story. There's, there's a couple of questions, I suppose, I ask a lot of my guests, and one of them is kind of on success. And everybody has a different probably perception, but what does success mean to you? Yeah, you know, success is absolutely individually defined, and it should be, because you should never let somebody else's definition of success impact you. That's first. For me, success would be financial freedom, because I think there is a, a lot that comes with that. So I'm working hard, or financial independence. I, I'm working really hard to try to get that over the line, and I will admit right now I'm not there yet. But success then also means those small points. If you have a higher goal, that's important to have. So you're working towards something that's aspirational and lofty that you've set yourself. But also the little successes, the milestones, the, the time you get a note from someone through LinkedIn that what you posted meant a lot to them. Or some guy named Tom reaches out to you and says, hey, let's do a podcast. If you don't take account of those, I think you're really missing opportunities. A lot of times when I work with my coaching clients and I always ask them to share, how's your week been or what's been going on and what have you applied? And they'll say something that might seem small. Oh, I made an agenda and I asked everybody around the room and I guided that conversation. And I really was impressed with how they followed my lead. I say, darn it, we need to own that. We need to celebrate that. We need to put a line under that because that is a success. So to me, success is the compilation of the many small moments of joy, happiness, encouragement, interaction, noted added value along this journey that we call life. And I mean that sincerely. Yes, brilliant. Um, great answer. And Gina, I'm sure you've, you've learned lots of lessons during life, but is there anything so far that sticks with you or maybe it's a quote or something has left with you on your many meetings with people. So what would be one of your like biggest lessons in life you've learned so far? No, my, my biggest lesson in life is, is truly the fact that life is tenuous. And if you are not purposefully reaching out to people who might need your help, get out of your head is one of my biggest lessons. And I have to teach myself and remind myself that a lot because it's not always a great place when self-doubt or, or what you should be doing extra comes in or all these sorts of things. Reach out to somebody who, who needs you. Reach out to somebody who you might think wouldn't respond, but give encouraging words. My, I guess one of my biggest, my biggest successes to celebrate this morning is right before I came on with you, there's a friend and a, a colleague who over the last couple of weeks had been diagnosed. His, his Parkinson's has increased incredibly. And he is in hospital and very likely not to make it. And 
I wouldn't feel comfortable necessarily to call, but this morning when I was getting an update on his, his prognosis or his condition from another friend, I said, you know what, I'm going to text him on WhatsApp. And I did a goofy text with a little picture of me and the puppy and wishing him a great Monday. And by golly, the blue ticks came off that he'd seen it and he wrote back. And the fact that that, if I had thought, oh, he's too sick, I don't want to encourage him, or I don't want to bother him, which we often think. I don't want to bother somebody. It might be the very moment that they need a little something. And then their, their response to that little something will reinforce that you did it. So purposely taking ownership of changing your feedback loops to change the response to give that reinforcement. And that, to me, life is made up of these feedback loops. And that was one of the biggest successes this morning was to see that oh, he saw it and he responded. It made a difference. Maybe not the world's difference, but that's important. So for me, the most important thing that we can do in life is teach others that they matter and their stories can connect and the way they connect can matter to others, pure and simple. Um, Gina, last couple here now, I swear I won't keep you longer. Um, <laughs> what is our... Do you have any regrets? Oh, sure. Everybody's got regrets. I'm not going to list them all now. We'd be here for another few hours. But yeah, I, I, I don't agree when people say, oh, I don't have any regrets. Of course, our life is made up of choices. And our lives are made up of micro choices that can then impact in a greater way. Over time, my daughter's in her first year now of hopefully continuing to stay in school of, of secondary school. And I said, you are at a critical stage of choices. Some of the choices that you make unthinking can have incredible impact, not just at the secondary level, but all along. And I don't make them all right. I don't make them all right every day, but I'm committed to learning from them and refocusing and course correcting. And I think that's the best any of us can do. Um, last one, uh, Gina. Yep. Any book recommendations or podcasts or anything that you'd recommend to any of the listeners? Well, certainly your podcast. I mean, we have to make sure that that's top of the well, list. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, there are a couple of books that I think that have been helpful to me and I continue to refer back to. Uh, Marshall Goldsmith is a coach from the United States who works with a lot of top CEOs of large organizations. And he and a mentor of mine, Alan Weiss, uh, wrote, wrote a book recently, but Marshall's book on it that he wrote on his own is called Triggers. And it's a lot about our own behaviors and those small modifications of, of those behaviors that can not only help us, but help our relationships with others. So that would be a book that I would certainly recommend, Triggers by Marshall Goldsmith. Great, I'll have to check that out. And Gina, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find your Stay Connected with you? Ah, oh, terrific. Thanks for that. And if anyone, please, if you're interested at all in connecting, I'm on LinkedIn, Gina London. I'm active on Instagram and Twitter, which is the Gina London. And of course, my own website is GinaLondon.com. And finally, over the last couple of months, I've had a lot of my clients asking for more. And I have had the time to create and launch a new platform that is a combination of videos from me along with an exercise you can help track your progress around areas like executive presence around body language around how to motivate and inspire teams and that is found through my website or separately languageofleadership.org languageofleadership.org thanks so much
Gina, I just want to say thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing your story and getting some of your nuggets of life and inspiration and motivation so and expertise. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. I'm grateful. I mean, again, we're all communicators, but few of us are connecting. And it takes some effort, but it can be developed like a skill like anything else. And that's my passion. I really appreciate the opportunity to share that with you. Thanks, Gina.